Good day, everyone, and welcome once again to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and every week I lead you on a little bit of a time travel journey back 50 years where we report on the news from the hockey and sports worlds at that time. Now this week, we're back with uh, the period from January 26th to February 1st, 1970. Now, as we do every week, we like to mention our sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online archive of newspapers on the planet, and most of our research comes from them. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. They make some amazing craft beers and have some outstanding pub food. And if you're ever in the Niagara region, you got to give me a call and also go to the Breakwall Brewery. In last week's show, some of the news we discussed was the 1970 All-Star Game. It was played in St. Louis. It was quite an event. Uh, We talked about progress being made in the expansion cities of Buffalo and Vancouver. And we had some personal uh, recollections that week about our personality that we spoke about. Dick Duff, who is a Hockey Hall of Fame member, and he was my favorite player when I was a kid. Now this week, whole new set of news items to be covered. Some of these include uh, a conversation that the editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch had with St. Louis Blues trainer Tommy Woodcock. We look at the situation out in Vancouver where speculation is running rampant about who they're going to hire as their general manager. And we'll uh, talk about our personality of the week and his rather chilling interview with a Toronto sports writer in January of 1970. Of course, we've got all the news and notes from this week, and so let's see what we can find out this time around. St. Louis Blues trainer Tommy Woodcock was 35 years old in 1970 and had already been around the hockey world for quite a period of time. Uh, This week, 50 years ago, he spoke with Bob Brogue, the sports editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, about the state of hockey equipment in the 1970s. Tommy said that the equipment of that time period had at that time not kept up with the evolution of the game of hockey. Now, this is a subject that's uh, sort of near and dear to my heart. In those days, 1970, still in my teens, just barely, I was I was a hockey nut, played hockey as much as I could, goaltender, and I was an equipment junkie. I was always looking for a new protective piece to stick in my uh, gear bag. Uh, I tried every face mask that came along, the wire ones, the steel ones, the fiberglass ones, always trading stuff for used gear because I really couldn't afford new stuff most of the time. In fact, I never had new goalie pads until my parents, God bless them, uh, kicked in for a medium price set. Um, My first year of university when I was playing up there with borrowed equipment, Uh, In fact, I was so enthralled with hockey gear that eventually, in my early 20s, I ended up in a partnership with another fella uh, in a sporting goods store in the town of Dunville, Ontario. Turned out the guy that I ended up being partners with was a bit of a crook. He ended up getting arrested for fraud. Uh, for fraudulently submitting doctored sales tax statements. Luckily, I knew a little bit about bookkeeping, uh, saw what he was doing, and notified the authorities, and he got picked up and charged with fraud, and I got out of there with my reputation and my record intact. But that's a story for another time. Right now, back to Tommy Woodcock. Tommy was an original blue, came on when the franchise was established, had, uh, he's a, uh, native of, I believe, Rhode Island, and had been around hockey for years. His dad was a rink manager. He played a bit, even got as high as the American Hockey League before someone took Tommy aside and said, your future in this game is not as a player, and he became a top-notch uh, trainer. He enjoyed working for the Blues, told uh, Bob Brogue that Scotty Bowman 
took really, really good care of him. He arranged for his family uh, and him to enjoy New Brunswick four weeks in the summer. And uh, as long as Tommy would help him out with the summer hockey camp out there. Tommy also worked with an equipment company, Rawlings, more famous for their baseball gear. And he was helping them designing new equipment. Tommy said that hockey equipment hasn't kept pace with the progress of the game at this time because apparently, and this is a really good point I'd never thought of, there was not enough demand in the United States in the past for hockey equipment. Enough kids didn't play the game, but with the advent of expansion in the National Hockey League and the uh, prospect of a coast-to-coast television contract, Tommy and the people at Rawlings felt there would be a much larger demand for the protective equipment for hockey. The professionals who were brought up in Canada's rigid junior hockey program, uh, they were accustomed to hand-me-down equipment. That's what we did in those days. And They weren't demanding new stuff as well, even though they were receptive to new styles of equipment, more change. But hockey players are a stubborn bunch. Uh, They're a traditional group of uh, sportsmen, and they like what always worked for them. That's why I think, and why Tommy thinks, that hockey equipment just didn't evolve the way the sport did. Tommy said, you got to persuade them to experiment. He says, for instance... I haven't been able to get Al Arbor to change his gloves and elbow pads that are so uh, ragged, they don't even protect his hands anymore. Superstition, he says, is part of it. Comfort is the other. Tommy went on to say that there's so much speed and power involved in hockey in 1970 that sometimes he's got to actually tell a player when he's been cut. He said, despite the thick stockings they have, plastic shin guards, cotton padded shoulder pads whatever they have they still get cut and a lot of times they don't even know it and even when the blood is running down their face and the trainer has to be vigilant and let them know what's going on tommy related a story about the veteran surgeon dr jg probstein who was formerly the team position for the old st louis browns baseball team now he was at the blues uh Uh, helping them out with injuries that came along. And the first time he laid out his surgical thread and needle, he reached for his surgical gloves and Novocaine. And uh, Woodcock said to him, hurry up, Doc, we got to get this guy back in the game, was Al Arbor. Arbor, he had been cut over the eye at the time. He agreed and he said, look, Doc, he says, I don't want any shot. I just want to get stitched without any painkillers. Just get me back on the ice. Now, Woodcock, he laughed as he related the story. He said, Dr. Probstein tells his regular clientele, do you want to be stitched a doctor's way or a hockey player's way? Because that's how the hockey players light it. No painkiller and fast as possible. Now, Woodcock believes that the high top shoe skate, that's what's used today. The CCM Tackaberry is a preferred uh, model for all professional players. It's really heavily reinforced at the ankle. And that's the best piece of hockey equipment there is. It doesn't need to change, according to Tommy. He believes that shoulder pads are designed all wrong. They have to give support and protection rather than be light and just kind of give up sort of a... Uh, modicum of protection for the players and he says that the helmets in 1970 are completely totally inadequate to provide proper uh, protection for the skull and they must be completely redesigned and in fact something new has to be invented the one that stan makita wears is better than those that have been used in the past but woodcock still feels that that piece of equipment could use some enhancement as well He also thinks that both shin pads and elbow pads could be a lot better. Elbow pads especially. Tommy says that a problem among hockey players these days that isn't uh, uh, publicized as much is that there are too many ruptured bursa sacs at the elbow. Now, I can attest to that. I had a pair of arm pads when I played goal that just were 
barely adequate for stopping the worst the worst of the shots. I didn't get many broken bones, but I got a lot of bruising. But I never had an injury more painful than when I ruptured a bursa sac in my left elbow, and I was laid up from hockey for just about a month with that sucker. So that's Tommy Woodcock talking about the state of equipment. Tommy was known as an innovator, and as time would go on in the 70s, he would come up with a lot of new methods of uh, protection that really helped the players who played for the Blues and in the rest of the National Hockey League. And we get to the news and the notes of this week. Lots again here this time around. Now the week started off with the Montreal Canadiens announcing that the player to be named later in the trade in which they sent veteran Dickie Duff to the Los Angeles Kings, we spoke about that last week, was center Dennis Hextall. Uh, A draft pick would also be involved in this deal. The announcement of Hextall's acquisition had to be delayed while Montreal Canadians and the NHL decided whether the Habs would be able to send Hextall to the American Hockey League Montreal Voyagers upon his acquisition without having to go through waivers. There was some discussion that Hextall was subject to waivers and the Canadians didn't want to keep him on the roster. They had a roster crunch at this point just too many players as the Habs had, as everyone knows, back as the 70s uh, started to roll around, an embarrassment of riches and young talent, and a lot of players had to go down to the Voyagers. Now, as it turned out, according to the Habs and NHL sources at the time, Hextall, who was a protected player with the Kings in last year's June draft, was eligible to be sent to the minor leagues once without having to be waived, which was kind of an interesting thing because other teams had found at the time, or maybe they didn't know, put players who were being sent to the minors for the first time in a given season on waivers. But the reason they got through waivers was because the price, $30,000, was prohibitive for most NHL teams. Hextall was such a good player, the Habs knew, that any expansion team or in fact, any of the weaker Eastern teams like Toronto would happily pay $30,000 for a player of Hextall's caliber. But the rule was uh, made public that he didn't have to go through waivers, so Dennis was sent immediately to the Montreal Voyageurs. With Ralph Backstrom out of Montreal's lineup for the past weekend games with the flu, his replacement, called up from the AHL Voyageurs, was a young fellow by the name of Larry Plo. Now, this was actually an historic event as Plo played for the Canadians in the weekend games. And this marked the very first time in Montreal Canadiens history that two American players had suited up for the Habs. The other player is young Bobby Sheehan, who many regarded as a Canadian because he played junior hockey uh, out east and in St. Catharines, and he had already been with the Habs, and the two of them played together this past weekend for Canadians. Maybe this is a sign of how bad the Habs are when uh, two American players could sign up for the team. The Canadian talent must have been getting thin. The Habs actually had a lot of talent at this time. The problem was it was all very young, very raw, and I don't think the coach they had in Claude Ruel was particularly adept at developing young talent. And we'll uh, check on the progress again in Vancouver. There's just so much coming out of there. Uh, The couple of writers seem to be feuding with the uh, new management that owns the Canucks, Metacore, uh, and everybody who gets a chance to talk to anybody who works for the current Canucks is asking lots of questions. Now, you remember Phil Maloney. Phil was a longtime hockey player. He had a great career, uh, played in the NHL, but more in the American Hockey League and the Western Hockey League. He finally uh, formally retired this season, and his new gig was with the Vancouver NHL team as he's scouting for them. He's traveling from coast to coast 
uh, going to all different NHL, American, and Western League cities, having a look at uh, talent. Now, he's working for Joe Crozier, who is the current general manager coach of the Western Hockey League Canucks, and everybody is just sort of up to this point thought that Joe would uh, just move into the same job with the NHL team, but that might not be the case. Uh, Phil's been on the road for a while because he hasn't been home to find out just what's going on in Vancouver. Joe's name is actually fading from the top of the list of potential hires for the Canucks, and no one really seems to know exactly why this has taken place. Now, Hal Sigurdsson, he's a fine hockey writer for the Vancouver Sun. He reported that Bud Poyle, fired general manager earlier this season from the Philadelphia Flyers, is indeed the man who, according to Sigurdsson, will become the Vancouver general manager. Although he was quick to point out that no contract had yet formally been signed. Meanwhile, Clancy Loranger of the Vancouver Province, a rival newspaper and a strong rivalry between the two papers out there, he's a big booster of Joe Crozier. In fact, he'd been running a kind of a daily count of how many days since Medicor took over the team uh, it had been that they had not announced a new man to run the team. Uh, he reported that he spoke to Tom Scallon, that's the president of Medicor, and he said that he hadn't hired Bud Poyle or anyone else by Thursday, January 29th. More rumors about Poyle and a few other names came and went for the rest of this week. Everybody seemed to have an idea about what was going on. In fact, there was a strong one that the former Red Wings coach, Bill Gadsby, who was thought to be part of a package deal with Poyle as coach to Poyle being general manager. But that was finally established this week that he will not be the first coach of the Vancouver Canucks NHL team. It was Gadsby himself who said that that wasn't going to be the case. And then Poyle was tracked down by uh, several Vancouver writers. And he told them all that if indeed he were to take control of the NHL team in Vancouver, he wasn't going to hire his old friend, Bill Gadsby. Another highly respected uh, columnist for Va in Vancouver is Jim Kearney, who uh, anybody who followed hockey at that time knew who Jim was. He floated yet another name as a long-shot candidate for the Vancouver Post, that of former Montreal Canadian star Kenny Reardon, whose name has come up for several jobs over the past few years. In fact, one report back in 1967 had Reardon all but signed, sealed, and delivered as the first general manager of the Los Angeles Kings, but that never did come off. Reardon was also thought to be a strong candidate to become the Montreal Canadiens general manager when Frank Selke Sr. retired, and he was reported to have been miffed when he was passed over for that spot in favor of present GM Sam Pollock. Well, everybody knows what Sam's done, and I think the Habs made out pretty well on that one. Reardon's no, by no means a favorite to get the Vancouver job, but Kearney says, and Kearney is very well connected, that that's a name that just won't go away, maybe hanging around there in the background. Now, just to complicate matters even more in Vancouver, as if they could get any more complicated, the new Buffalo general manager coach, Punch Imlach, told reporters in his city that if the Canucks aren't going to hire Joe Crozier, then he would love to offer him a job with his new Buffalo club. But Punch said he would not make any offer until the Canucks make the decision on their general manager and what they'll do with Crozier. Now, Scallon was asked by Vancouver scribes if he would pursue any tampering charges against Imlac, but Scallon said he had no intention of following up on this incident in that manner. It sounded like Tom might figure that if Imlac were able to hire Crozier away, that would constitute the removal of one headache he might not have to and rather probably would rather not have to deal with. Well, in Philadelphia, another week 
and another benching by coach Vic Stasiuk. This week, coach Stasiuk doesn't seem to like veteran forward Bill Sudsy Sutherland. Now, he's a workmanlike guy who most observers regard as an honest hockey player. I think you know what I mean by that. He's a guy who gives a full effort every single game, rarely takes a shift off. Now, Sudsy's another one of those guys who isn't a rough and tough brawler, which is uh, the type of guy that Stasiuk seems to favor. Sudsy's more of a finesse player. He prefers to let his scoring exploits do his talking. Stasiuk sat the 35-year-old down this week for several games, but as is his usual uh, style, he didn't bother to explain to Bill why he was sitting out or for how long the benching might last or what Bill could do to regain his spot in the lineup. Sutherland said all he wants to do is play hockey, just wants to play for the Flyers. He gets back in and he can guarantee he can put the puck in the net. This is another case, just like Andre Lacroix last week, of Stasiak continuing to whine about his lack of offense and then sitting down the guys who actually seem to be able to provide the offense. I just don't get it, what Stasiak's doing in Philadelphia. But the ownership and the management there seems to like him, so he seems fairly secure in his job. Some news from the Bruins this week. Uh, all season, the Bruins have been rotating goalies Jerry Cheevers and Ed Johnson, usually game for game, and the results have been kind of mixed. Uh, Johnson, this season, currently has a goals against average of 2.78, and Cheevers is at an even three, and this is the sixth best tandem in the NHL this year. That's a 289 average, by the way. Well, Harry Sinden says the rotation is coming to an end this week. He's going with veteran Johnston, who's a little bit older than Cheesy, for the foreseeable future. But Sinden didn't make a full uh, commitment to Johnson in this way. He said that he's going to probably go with whoever the hot man is in goal, which seems to be the modus operandi for most NHL coaches these days. I can remember when teams had just one goaltender and having a rotation was unheard of. And now it's a uh, hot man goes uh, most of the time and that's what's going to happen. But knowing Johnston, he is a hot and cold guy and Cheevers who can get hotter than a pistol for any team. He could be in between the pipes from Boston in short order if EJ's play slips at all. The Bruins also announced the recall of rookie forward Don Marcotte from AHL Hershey. Marcotte's an interesting case. He's a young guy, comes out of the Niagara Falls Juniors, has played the last couple years in the American League. Uh, we thought that Don might end up in Oklahoma City, which is the Bruins' pretty well number one farm team, but the Bruins said that they liked Marcotte's hard-nosed style of play and they felt that he would benefit more from playing for the Hershey Bears in the American Hockey League, which has a lot more veterans and I might add is a lot rougher on a young guy to play. So Marcotte sounds like he's learned his lessons well and he's headed to the big leagues with the Bruins. Bruins defenseman Bobby Orr continues to lead the NHL in scoring. He has an amazing total of 14 goals, 54 assists for 68 points, and that's 11 ahead of teammate Phil Esposito. What a lot of people are surprised of is who's in third place in the league scoring. It's young New York Rangers center Walter Kachuk, who has 22 goals, 34 assists, for a total of 56 points. In Toronto, uh, the Leafs are struggling this year. We talked about that last night. One of the reasons they're struggling, a lot of people looking at center Norm Ullman. Where's number nine for the Maple Leafs? You'll remember Norm came to the Maple Leafs in March of 1968 in a gigantic trade that also brought Floyd Smith and Paul Henderson to Toronto. In exchange, the Leafs sent superstar Frank Mahovlich along with Pete Stemkowski, Gary Unger, and the rights to Carl Brewer to the Red Wings. Now, all four of those guys are leading the Red Wings to an almost surefire playoff spot this year. And Brewer, in fact, has been one of the best defensemen in the NHL. So their success in Detroit is shining an even more intense spotlight 
on Norm Ullman, who's one of the good guys in the game. Ullman is working just as hard as he ever did. He's one of those other guys you'd call an honest hockey player. Probably one of the best forechecking centers in the history of the NHL. This year, however, though, in 43 games, Norm has scored only eight goals. He's added 23 assists, and that is well below what Norm would consider his usual standard. Toronto reporters talked to Norm after one practice this week, and this is what he said it's like to be Norm Ullman these days. He says, you wake up in the morning, you get mad at yourself, and you say, well, I'll give her at 150% in tonight's game, and uh, things will start to work out for me. And then you go play the game, nothing happens. He said, it wouldn't be so bad if the team was doing well. If we were third or fourth, maybe it wouldn't be the same. I wouldn't feel so rotten. But you feel bad when you realize that you're not helping the team. I'm getting the chances all right. I just can't seem to put the puck in the net. And that is something that Norm Ullman, throughout his career, has never had trouble doing. You got to feel bad for a veteran like Ullman. But Norm actually just has to look around. The talent on this Toronto team is woke hopefully thin, and he doesn't have much help. When you're sending uh, passes off to guys who have absolutely no NHL experience and have never been big scorers in the minor leagues, you got to understand they're not going to do that in the NHL as well. Here's hoping that Norm Ullman, like his former teammate Alex Del Vecchio, will suddenly find his uh, scoring uh, prowess again and start putting some pucks in the net if only for his own uh, self-esteem if not to help the Maple Leafs become a little more successful. The Associated Press in the United States has named their hockey player of the 1960s and he is Bobby Hull. Seems reasonable to me, aside from Hull's sometimes personality flaws. You can't argue with the numbers. Bobby scored 50 goals four times, narrowly winning the award over the great Gordie Howe, who deserved votes just for being there. Gordie is by far a better hockey player than Bobby Hull, but you got to admit, Bobby rewrote the record book in the 60s uh, in an era where 50 goals was the most anyone had ever scored in a season. Bobby broke that record, did it four times. Another quick note from the Bruins before we leave them. Uh, Derek Sanderson, who's been out with a hip injury, at least that's what they're telling us it is, since January 3rd, has finally begun skating for the Bruins, and he should return to their lineup shortly as well. Marcotte, however, the Bruins said, will be staying with the club. Pittsburgh Penguins made an interesting pickup the other day. They purchased defenseman Duncan McCallum from the Providence Reds. Uh, Dunk was original Penguin, picked up in the 1967 expansion draft, and he played for the Pens last season as well. But in the reverse draft last summer, he was grabbed by Providence. Now, the reverse draft is a, a function by which minor league teams can take unprotected players from an NHL roster. Dunk was not protected by the Penguins. The Providence took him, but he refused to report to the American Hockey League team, and he hadn't played this season. What's Dunk been doing in the meantime? He's been selling insurance in the Pittsburgh area. Somebody must have liked his style because they brought him back to the Penguins, and they're going to use him for the rest of this season, according to Coach Red Kelly. A little bit of news about the new expansion team in Buffalo this week. It's all good stuff. It only took two days of negotiations for the new Buffalo team to uh, nail down a contract, a lease with the city of Buffalo for the use of Memorial Auditorium for NHL games. Now, the uh, Buffalo people sealed the deal when they agreed to give the city 15% of their concession revenue instead of the 10 they originally proposed. Once they upped that offer by that 5%, the city fathers uh, put their names on the dotted line. So did the Knox brothers. And it's official now that uh, Memorial Auditorium will be the home 
of the Buffalo NHL team. And by the way, the team hasn't got a name yet, but this week they did announce that a Name the Team contest will be held to determine what they're going to call the club. The Knox brothers, uh, Seymour Knox uh, in particular, said that the Bisons is a wonderfully traditional name, but this is the start of a new era in sports in Buffalo, and they want a new name to kind of reflect the new start. Fans will be able to submit one entry per person by sending it by mail to the address of the team in Buffalo. The winner will receive two season tickets for the first year of the Sabres franchise and the next four winners will get a pair of tickets each to the home opener in the first NHL game to be held in Buffalo. You may remember a couple of years ago a bunch of uh, trophies were stolen from the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. They were recovered in a shed in Toronto by um, Metro Toronto police detectives. Well, it's happened again, and this time it's got staff at the Hall, Hall of Fame mystified. Uh, somebody had managed to take a three-tiered nickel and silver section of the Stanley Cup uh, from its display case at the uh, Canadian National Exhibition Grounds, where the Hall of Fame is in Toronto. Now, Lefty Reed, he's the curator of the Hall of Fame. He describes it as a collar and virtually worthless, except as a museum piece. Lefty says if the thieves uh, took the piece and melted it down to get what it's worth, it wouldn't net them much more than about 50 bucks. The strange part is there is no evidence of any forcible entry, so it means the piece was likely taken during the time that the hall is open, and we'll have to stay tuned to see if they can recover this very, very, very significant piece of hockey memorabilia. Now, we've spoken over the past few weeks about Kurt Flood's case against Major League Baseball in an effort to get the reserve clause uh, abolished in that sport and quite likely in other sports as well. Well, somebody asked NHL President Clarence Campbell about it when he was speaking to about 500 students at Carleton University in Ottawa during the taping of a syndicated TV show. Campbell, as one might expect, defended the reserve clause. He called it integral to the uh, survival of hockey and other team professional sports. And he said that while he agrees that the reserve clause provides a degree of control over a player's movement within the league, if any player disapproves of of this clause, he's always free to quit hockey. You don't have to work in hockey, so we're not uh, doing anything to take away your rights. You're perfectly free to go work as a waiter in a restaurant or a truck driver or whatever else you want to do if you don't like the conditions that hockey sets out in front of you. Now, methinks Clarence is a little unclear, which is strange for a lawyer, on the concept of restraint of trade and a free market. And speaking of player relations, I got a little bit of news from our Alan Eagleson, who, as everyone knows, is the executive director of the National Hockey League Players Association. He says, and I don't know just how much I believe from Eagleson these days, uh, he says that last year, the Russians backed away from a challenge by the Players Association to meet in a game to determine once and for all who's best between the two hockey cultures. Eagleson said that the NHLPA delivered the challenge to the Russian Ice Hockey Federation last April while he was visiting the USSR and conferring with Russian hockey officials. The challenge was delivered probably almost in anger after a story surfaced that was attributed to the Russian national team coach Anatoly Tarasov. Tarasov, in the story, stated that Canadians were afraid to play his country. Now, the Russians, according to Eagleson, never accepted the challenge, and they asked Eagleson not to go public with the challenge until they sorted out what was going on with Tarasov. Well, Tarasov stood by his comments, but the Russian Hockey Federation apologized for what he said, but they didn't take the comments back. They just said, 
That's strictly Tarasov's private opinions, or as much as private opinions are allowed in the Soviet Union in 1970, and that isn't very many, that's for sure. In any event, for some reason, and Eagleson never completely explains this, the challenge went unmet and nothing happened as far as a game between Canadian professionals and the Russians in 1970. Well, one of uh, Eagleson's clients we'd talk about this week was Toronto Maple Leaf forward Mike Walton, a really talented guy, but oftentimes really troubled. We thought maybe after Punchimlak left the Maple Leafs last spring that Mike would blossom into the stardom that so many have predicted for him now that he's been released from the shackles placed upon him by Imlak. Well, Mike just can't seem to get it right in Toronto. This week, he showed up at a practice about an hour late, in fact, just as the team was getting off the ice from the workout. Coach uh, John McClellan summoned Walton to his office, and voices were raised, at least on one side of the equation, McClellan's, and he said that Walton's tardiness was going to lighten his pocketbook substantially. It also remains to be seen whether uh, McClellan will take any other disciplinary action on Mike, like sitting him out for a few games. Walton just said that he honestly believed that the practice was scheduled an hour later than it was. City of Winnipeg's come up with a novel idea. Now, you remember they lost hundreds of thousands of dollars when the World Hockey Championships slated to have been played in, in uh, Winnipeg this March were canceled when Canada withdrew from all international hockey competition. Well, they found a way to try and make some of that money back. The city of Winnipeg says the plans are underway to bring all 14 National Hockey League teams to the city for a tournament in September. Maitland Steinkoff, he's the chair of the Manitoba Centennial Corporation, said he's already spoken with NHL President Clarence Campbell, and he feels, along with Campbell, that there's about a 75% chance they can pull this thing off. Should be an interesting thing to see a tournament like that in the fall, but I wonder how serious the teams will take it, being it'll be smack dab in the middle of training camp, and you know the NHL will not delay the start of their season to make this sort of some uh, sort of significant event. Right now, it's just an exhibition fun thing from what we can see. Now, here's a really nice story we don't mind reporting. Uh, you remember Kenny Warham had a heart attack last fall at Chicago's training camp. Well, he showed up at a Blackhawks game versus Toronto on the weekend, and he got a huge ovation from the over 19,000 who were jammed in the building, as they usually are every night. By the way, don't believe those 16,666 uh, numbers that come out every week from Chicago. They're getting 20,000 in there on some nights. Kenny told people that he skated a few times, 15 minutes a session, on the advice of his doctors after he got out of the hospital. Now, he's going to uh, leave Chicago shortly and head out back to North Bay where he lives in the off season. And he's going to spend about three months there in doing some rehab work, getting himself back in shape. Kenny says, I regained 30 pounds that I lost following my heart attack and I'm going to undergo tests at the Cleveland Clinic after spending three months at home and the rest of those tests will determine my future. Kenny's holding out a long shot hope that he can come back to the National Hockey League, but doctors have been pretty clear that his uh, professional playing days, at least, are over. Here's uh, an interesting story that came up just at the end of the week. We just wanted to get this in. Uh, Vancouver and Buffalo have been promised the first two picks in this spring's National Hockey League amateur draft. Of course, there's a head and shoulders pick above all the others, and that is young Gilbert Perrault of the Montreal Junior Canadiens. Both Vancouver and Buffalo would love to get this young guy. What a player to start uh, to build a franchise around, especially a starting franchise. Now, the Canucks have proposed that they and the new Buffalo team have a season-ending uh, after the end of the season game or series to determine who would get the first pick. Winner of the series, obviously, would get to pick first in the draft. Now, I can understand Vancouver's uh, thinking wanting this. The Canucks own 51 
professional players, while Buffalo owns only three from their American Hockey League team. The Canucks, of course, are in the Western Hockey League right now. This this is never going to work because Buffalo has no say over the rest of their American League players uh, would be able to play or participate at all in such a series. Most of those guys are owned by the New York Rangers. And why would the Rangers risk an asset for what is basically something meaningless to them? Buffalo in the AHL and Vancouver in the WHL are running away with their leagues. Uh, they're both the, the class of their leagues, but there's a whole different set of circumstances in Vancouver than Buffalo, and nothing was going to come of this suggestion. Now, this is the time in the show when normally each week we like to profile a person who is a very, very uh, high-profile guy in the hockey hockey world. Last week, we talked about uh, Dick Duff, who was traded from Montreal to the Los Angeles Kings 50 years ago last week. Of course, I talked about Dick because I, I met him a couple times and just a, a really good guy, and I thought it was a good time to profile him. This week, we're going to talk about a young player that we never really got to meet and got to know very well. He only lasted one year in the NHL, and that was a very, very sad story. I'm talking, of course, about the fine rookie center for the 1969-70 season with the Pittsburgh Penguins, Michelle Briere. Uh, Michelle, you, you remember came out of junior hockey in Quebec and in the 1969 amateur draft the Penguins actually selected him in the second round he'd been a brilliant junior player in uh, Quebec he set a league record scoring 76 goals for Shawinigan uh, during the season and then was uh, drafted, like we say, in the second round after a young fellow named Rick Kessel, no relation to Phil, by the Penguins. Uh, the reason that uh, Michelle lasted even that long in the draft was because he was thought to be too small, uh, to not physically strong enough to make his mark in the NHL. Uh, Michelle was uh, 5'9", 170 pounds, but he had blazing speed and he was enormously offensively gifted. He could put the puck in the net and his passing skills were probably the best of any rookie that came into the league that year. Remember Bobby Clark uh, was probably the best forward that came into the league in the 69-70 season. Michelle uh, went to training camp with the Penguins. He was hoping to make the American League team the Penguins had in Baltimore. He didn't even think he was good enough at that point to make the NHL. He was hoping to make it to the American League and not have to play in either the International League or the Eastern League. Now, the Eastern League was a blood and guts league back then, and a young, uh, smallish player like him was probably worried about uh, surviving in that environment. Well, as it turned out, when he got the training camp, Michelle turned everybody's heads his speed his scoring touch his shot his passing and his bravado made everybody stand up and take notice of this young player he led the penguins in scoring in training camp when most people didn't even know his name and it was impossible for coach red kelly to leave him off the squad Kelly named Briere to the starting team, and I think he even centered the second line to start the season for the Penguins. Briere scored only 12 goals in the season, but we have a bit of audio that we've managed to dig up of Michelle's first goal, which he scored in a game against the Minnesota North Stars. Briere. Skated him off. Snapped by Rupp. Schinkel. Wojtowicz. Schinkel. Briere. Saved by Broderick. And another goal for the Penguins. Oh, 
Breyer. He took the shot. Let's see what happens here. Here's number 20, Prentice. No, it wasn't Prentice at all. So at this point of the season, near the end of uh, January 1970, the Maple Leafs were playing in Pittsburgh, and Globe and Mail uh, hockey writer Dan Proudfoot journeyed to the Steel City with the uh, Leafs, and his main goal, he thought, would be to speak to this young phenom, Michelle Briere, and he met Michelle before, uh, during some time off before the, the Leafs' next game. When he met uh, Briere, the first thing that I think probably took uh, Dan maybe took him aback a bit was the flashy car he had. It was an orange and black with a spoiler on it, and uh, they were going to go for a ride to get some lunch somewhere by the by the sounds of the interview. Right away when they got in the car, Michelle told Dan Proudfoot he had no car insurance. Dan said, now here is his beautiful car that probably cost as much as the bonus the Penguins gave the kid when they signed him in the fall, and it wasn't insured. Dan just couldn't figure that out. He said, from what he'd heard, this beautiful car that he that he got when he signed with the penguins basically was the biggest tourist attraction in little malartic quebec where michelle came from michelle explained he said i had no car no driver's license before i came here to pittsburgh so the insurance people got very worried when i got this hot car with its big engine and so i'm driving with no insurance uh, really surprising uh, Proudfoot said that's Briere's style. He makes up his mind he's going to do something. He makes up his mind he's right. And then he goes full speed ahead with whatever it is he decides to do. Now, Jack Riley, the Penguins general manager, had said that when we were trying to uh, sign Briere last fall, he told uh, the Penguins uh, he wanted bonus money. Riley said said to Briere he shouldn't expect anything more than what the Penguins were offering. And Briere turned around and said what he wanted really wasn't much at all because he'd be playing for Pittsburgh over the next 20 years. That's right, Michelle said to Dan Proudfoot. I told him that $5,000, which was apparently the sum Briere requested, wasn't too much when you figure it out over 20 years. And then, of course, he laughed about that. But Briere got the money. And in the uh, Penguins exhibition schedule, he was amazing, like we said. So, he uh, talked about driving around in Pittsburgh. Briere said, I don't know whether he was not a very good driver, whether he's unfamiliar with big cities, which was more likely the case, I would imagine. He said, the streets here are very confusing. There are three rivers and the streets go up, down and all over the place. Michelle uh, talked a bit about the, a little bit more about the, the city of Pittsburgh. Didn't really like it too much. He said Derek Sanderson was right when he said Pittsburgh didn't have any pretty girls, but that didn't matter to him because he was engaged, he was getting married in the summer, and that was the best thing for a hockey player to be married. The season went on for, for Briere. He ended up his only season with a good record of 12 goals, 32 assists for 44 points. He played in every one of the Penguins' 76 games. In the playoffs, he uh, etched himself a special spot in the Pittsburgh all-time record book when he scored the first playoff series winning goal in Penguins history when they defeated Oakland 3-2 to on April 12th, 1970. That was also the first time a Penguins team had won a playoff series. After the playoffs finished that year, Michelle returned to Quebec and he married his childhood sweetheart, Michelle Baudouin, and the couple had a son whom they named Michelle. They were to be married on June 6, 1970, but on the evening of May 15th, Briere was involved in a single car crash. He had two friends in the car with him, but he was driving. He was ejected from the orange 1970 Mercury Cougar along Route 117 in Valdor, which is about 70 miles from the hometown of the village of Malartic. Uh, Michel suffered major head trauma in the accident. He was flown 300 miles to Notre Dame Hospital in Montreal, where a leading neurosurgeon in Quebec performed the four, first of four brain surgeries. He was given a prognosis that gave him a 50-50 chance of surviving, but that wasn't to be the case. Briere went into a coma from which he would never recover. He was finally transferred to Montreal's Marie Clarac Rehabilitation Hospital on March 27, 1971. 
The Penguins finished the regular 70-71 season at home on April 4th, and they missed the playoffs. Nine days later, after 11 months in the coma, Michelle Briere passed away at 4.20 p.m. Now, Michelle's number 21 was never again worn by a Pittsburgh Penguins player and was officially retired on January 5th, 2001. The Quebec Major Junior Hockey League renamed its Most Valuable Player Award the Michelle Briere Memorial Trophy in 1972. The Penguins also present the Michelle Briere Rookie of the Year Award annually to the season's best rookie player on that team. So that's our Hockey Personality of the Week, a sad story of tragically unrealized potential. And we thank author Todd Deneau, from whom we'll be hearing a lot more from in upcoming special podcasts, for the biographical information on Michelle Briere. Well, my friends, that's our show for this week. Uh, ends on a sort of a bittersweet note with the story of Michelle Briere. But what did we learn out of uh, this session this time around? Well, we learned a few things. One, we learned that St. Louis Blues trainer Tommy Woodcock really knows his stuff, and he was not afraid to experiment with new pieces of equipment. We learned that Joe Crozier will get a job somewhere in hockey, thanks to the interest expressed by Buffalo General Manager Punch him lack. And we learned a little more about a guy I call a lost superstar, Michelle Briere. Thanks very much for being with us uh, this week, folks. The uh, 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Our introductory music comes to us courtesy of the Rural Alberta Advantage, and other musical pieces and sound effects are by Andy Cole as well. Our stories are compiled with files from the Toronto Star and the Toronto Globe and Mail and the many, many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. And we have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, where we give updates on the Twitter and the podcast accounts as well. Another podcast you might find a lot of fun and very interesting is the Let's Write a Song podcast by Andy Cole. Uh, Andy's the host, he's my son, and each week he and a guest engage in some great conversation and they write and perform a completely new musical piece. It's a lot of fun and you may enjoy it. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for being with us and we will see you next time. When the